Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to bassist Arthur Barrow. Now Arthur, get this, so Arthur grows up in Texas, he's a musician, and his dream in life is to go and play with Frank Zappa. And believe it or not, in the late 70s, that actually comes true. Arthur goes and starts playing in Frank Zappa's band. Now you can imagine, if you've, you've heard stories I'm sure about Zappa and what kind of a kind of a taskmaster his, he was. His bands had to be so, so disciplined. Arthur does that for years. Well, eventually, of all people, to go from after Frank Zappa, he starts working very closely with Giorgio Moroder. I can't think of like two people on more polar opposites than Zappa and Giorgio, but that's who he starts working very closely with. And because of this, he's working. he begins working with the sort of the stable of producers that come from Giorgio's camp, namely people like Richie Zito and Keith Forsey. But he's very integrated in some of the acts that are working closely with all of those people during the 80s, especially. There's people like Berlin. In fact, he, uh, Arthur, was very involved in the creation of this Oscar-winning song that you're listening to right here, Take My Breath Away. He tells quite a story about this. So he starts working closely with people like Berlin, uh, with former guests like E.G. Daly, Paul Engeman from Device, who also came from the Giorgio Moroder camp. He works closely with Donna Summer, with Billy Idol, with uh, Charlie Sexton, Joe Cocker, the Motels. We talk about all of these people in here. Arthur has quite a story because it hasn't always been roses for Arthur. And he's pretty upfront about the things that have gone really well and about the times when he's got really screwed. In fact, he's got a book that I didn't know that he had until after talking to him. And it's called, Of Course I Said Yes. And he references that book a couple of times in here. I have to give a huge thank you to one of our listeners, Ken Evans from Down Under. Ken is the one who... Uh, recommended and put me in touch with Arthur. So thank you very much, Ken, and thank you very much, Arthur, for talking to me and telling me all your fantastic stories. Arthur called me from his home in L.A. I have to. I have a confession to make here, Arthur, and that is that I have never been able to figure out Frank Zappa, and I know that okay. that is the that's where you made your bones. I know that was the yeah. first big thing, and I want to hear about it, but. I would be lying if I said I wanted to spend too much time on that because all the Frank Zappa I've listened to in my life, I don't get it. To me, uh, Frank, and I don't mean that I'm not, I've learned since talking to so many musicians like you that it's not fair to just uh, disregard something and say, oh, it's crap or I don't like it. It's a matter of taste and some things I like and some things I don't. And when I listen to Zappa, to me, it sounds like music for other musicians. If I'm someone who's trying to get good at my, yeah, if I'm someone who's trying to get good at my instrument, I'm looking at what Frank's doing and I'm really captivated by it and I'm interested in, wow, how does he do that? But if I'm putting on music for pleasure, I never put on Frank Zappa. So anyway, right. tell us, explain well, to know, us the magic of Frank Zappa. Well, uh, first of all, this would be a good time to quote him when he says, there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was, I would say it was multidimensional. It went from the sort of intellectual, some of his deeper musical adventures to completely juvenile, some of his humor. Okay. And there were 
fans that came that wanted to hear the uh, the amazing music in the band, and there was other kids that wanted to hear the the dumb juvenile songs. Uh-huh. And uh, he, the, the two of them, I think I think he did the sort of juvenile. Well, first of all, he did have sort of a juvenile sense of humor himself. Right. He would right. laugh with naughty jokes and. And, uh, and it also, and, and by being shocking and saying bad words, in a way, that was his way of being commercial uh-huh. <laughs> to get attention. And, uh-huh. and so that he could ha- have a band and uh, do what he really loved to do was write music for that band and get really good musicians and, and push them to the extreme limits of what they could do technically uh-huh. and go out on a tour and, and show them off. And okay. uh, I, I can remember, I was one of those kids and I saw a couple of concerts where they just did stuff where like that they played that I thought was be impossible because I'd heard it on the record and yeah. just sounded like this ridiculous studio thing. And then they'd play it live and my jaw would just drop. And I remember when I was in the band too, that when I was in the position of being on stage and uh, we'd get to certain sections of certain songs where, you know, this like show off and technical, you know, seemingly impossible stuff to play. And we whip it out. And there was always a couple of young guys that did, right at the front of the stage and I could look at them and I'd watch their jaws just drop uh-huh. open and they couldn't believe what they were hearing. But, uh, yeah. So it was, but it's not, it's certainly not for everybody. The, yeah. the Zappa fans are, they're diehard like Dylan Jones or, or heads there. So, uh, so I don't mind not talking, that, you know, that can be it for talking about Frank Zappa. Okay. I, okay. Cause I get, I do, I do plenty of those, believe me. I bet you do. I bet. And but I'm, so, I'm way more into Giorgio Moroder, so I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna pick your brain on all kinds of stuff regarding the Giorgio. Absolutely, but, absolutely. but I will let's, let's let me throw this out there at least. I um, I will say that from all all that I've heard and read about, he always seemed like a really uh, respectable, good guy. Um, I've heard he's a little bit of a taskmaster when it comes to being the band leader, but that's to be expected for somebody as you know creative and as forth forward as he is. But um, I don't know. Is, tell me someplace I should start. I've listened to a lot of the albums and none of them exactly get me, but what's one that you worked on where you think, John, start here and see if you like that. Oh, one that I worked on? Well, yeah. um, if I was, well, if I was considering overall, what's my favorite album, it's not one that I worked on, but it's called One Size Fits All. Okay. And almost every, almost every song on there is, is great. And, um, uh, as far as ones I worked on, possibly Joe's Garage. That's the yeah. very first one I did with him. That's a famous one. Yeah. And uh, but I would actually say more than that. I would say uh, an album called Tinseltown Rebellion. Hmm. Okay. And um, there's some some really some pretty great stuff on there. Okay. He wrote a song called Tinseltown Rebellion, which is about all the when when the punk and new wave movement came along. From Madame Wong's to Starwood to the whiskey on the strip You can hear the crashing, blasting strum of bands that come to be real hip And get a record contract from a talent scout someday They'll sell their ass, their cocks and balls, they'll pay the check and walk away If they're lucky, they'll get famous for a week or two perhaps They'll buy some ugly clothes to wear And hope the business don't collapse Before some stupid magazine Besides they're really good They're a Tinseltown Rebellion band From downtown Hollywood Tinseltown Rebellion Tinseltown Rebellion band It's a little bitty Tinseltown 
All the guys in LA bands suddenly, like, you know, cut their hair and looked real, started looking punk and formed new uh-huh. bands to try to get a record deals and sort of uh-huh. making fun of all that. He's also enjoyed kind of you know, offending as many people as he could for some yeah. reason. That yeah. it, it's you know, it's part of being shocking and getting publicity, but sure. kept him going. Sure, I could see that. We should establish that I, from what I understand, reading about you, you, I mean, you are from Texas. You moved to L.A. and it's and primarily because I think your dream is to play with Zappa, right? And then it That's actually right. comes yeah. true. How does this happen? Right. Well, I I was just real lucky. Um, um, by the way, I can put in a plug for my book. I explain all this in my book. Of course, I said yes, which is oh. available. Um, I try to read everybody's books before I talk to them. I didn't know you had one. I'm sorry. I, I it. do. That's all right. That's okay. All right. Sorry um, about that. But, no, no, no problem. Um, gosh, just a lot of lucky things happened. I, I, uh, I, um, I, 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 I was lucky to go to a, a great music school in, in Texas, North Texas, and I went there uh, uh, largely because they had electronic music labs with Moog synthesizers, and I was really fascinated by that, that stuff, even in, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So I went there, and, and I, I was already into Zappa, but I just got more and more into it. He released a couple of albums uh, where he just had taken leaps and bounds to me musically, and I was just became more and more of a fan. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I did my put in my four years of college and, you know, some of my friends were going to go on to graduate school and some of them were going to go to New York and try to make it in the jazz scene. And But I had a friend who had just recently moved to L.A. To, and Hollywood and and, you know, got in touch with me and said, uh, God, you, should, you should come out here. You should move out here. It's really great. And of course, I knew that Zappa was from there. So that's what I decided to do. I, I, I played guitar and keyboards and then see that the. Yeah, about a year, a year and a half before I uh, graduated, I, I bought a bass and I decided I wanted to take up the bass too. And if I was going to play in Zappa's band, I kind of figured, well, he's the guitar player. And then he has other keyboard players like at the time, George Duke, and I could never be as yeah, good as him. Right. But I kind of enjoyed playing the bass and have a feel for it. Maybe I could be his bass player. So I finished up my school and I told my friends I'm going to move to move to Hollywood and, and go play in Frank Zappa's band. And of course, I'm wow. sure they didn't believe me, but just... Luck, one thing led to another. I got in a band with one of the ex-mothers and um, uh, Don Preston, and, and he gave me Frank Zappa's phone number, which I kept, you know, in my little book and didn't call it until the right time when uh, <laughs> a friend of mine called me uh, and told me that uh, Frank had fired his uh, then drummer and bass player and was looking for a new drummer and bass player. So I Jeez. figured, well, this is my moment. Yeah, and so I called him up and got him on the phone and and talked to him and in you know uh, he asked me to learn something a, a difficult piece on, on the bass and and I and I did and when I got, got to my audition um, he uh, I I, told, I said well here's that piece that from from Saint Alfonso that you told me to learn and I and I played it for him and he says well I heard a few mistakes but you, you have potential oh but, and he wanted me to hang around and play with other drummers and stuff and it, well, I learned later that. The day before I auditioned, there'd been like something like forty other bass players that auditioned. It was when Frank was looking for new band members that you know the call went out sure. all through LA. Everybody that you know thought they could cut it did it. And so anyway, he 
he hired me. So a lot of things just, I, I don't know, things seemed to fall into place. When Before I got in the band, I, I kept running into and meeting, you know, other people that played with Frank Zappa. So, you know, by the by the time I auditioned, I probably knew a half dozen ex-Zappa uh, players. So it just wow. seemed like, I don't know, I, I'm not too cosmic about it, but it, yeah. I just sort of, I was circling around the universe and it seemed like yeah. it was somehow meant to be. Like, yeah, sounds like it. For a little segue, I can tell you, that uh, to my surprise, Frank uh, liked and respected the Giorgio. See, okay, that was going to be my question. Like, how do you go from one? That's those seems like seem like total extremes. How do you go from they one are. to the other? <laughs> well, uh, versatility, I guess. Going back to the, the Giorgio thing, I, I remember it was uh, during that time. It was like 1978, and. There was this kind of big thing in America. It was like, you know, disco sucks. And there was the rock people and the disco yeah. people. And they were like Republicans and Democrats, practically, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it really surprised me. We went to Europe. And after the news, I said, oh, we're going to go. You want to go out? And said, oh, yeah, sure. And we went to a disco, which really surprised me. And, but I, it was like, well, that's where the girls are. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's where, and I can remember being in the, a disco and dancing to Giorgio's I Feel Love. But but Frank, you know, thank he thought it was cool. He liked the synthesizer stuff and the forward-lookingness of it. So, so the question is then: How did I get from playing with Frank Zappa to uh, to Giorgio Land? Mm -hmm. um, I, I played with Frank Zappa for two and a half years, and um, I, did, I made a decision just I'll just say for personal reasons to to stop playing in that band. And had a couple of years I was trying to work on some original stuff, which didn't go anywhere, but. Again, through two different sources, actually, I heard that Giorgio was looking for keyboard players and synth programmers. And by that time, I had a little bit, a couple of synths. I had an electric hop, and I had my Surge and a Jupiter 8. And I was able to get in touch with him. And once I got through his, got past his uh, unpleasant secretary, uh -huh. uh, because of coming from two avenues and got through okay. to him. And uh, the reason, uh, just to back up a little bit, the reason he was um, looking for someone is because he had, you know, after kind of falling out of favor with the end of, you know, Casablanca Records and the crash uh -huh. of the disco career, he, uh, he was he just kind of laid low and was not, you know, nobody was hiring him for anything, but he got hired to do, um, to write the song for Flashdance, but what a feeling song. Yeah. That I Harris sang.
And he suddenly, to everybody's surprise, that song became a big hit. And so he was, there he was, he kind of like a hit single and no album to go with it. And so, and he, one of the guys he'd been working with, had, I can't remember what, he'd fallen out of favor or moved away or something. But anyway, Giorgio needed to hire, needed synth guys. And at the time, there weren't really that many. And I was sort of one of them because I'd bought the Jupiter 8. I was, I've always been good with, you know, uh, synthesizer stuff. You know, as I said, uh-huh. I've been fiddling with them since, uh, uh, you know, in the early 70s when I was in music school. And so um, the, the, his audition was very different from the Zappa audition. I went up to his beautiful home in Beverly Hills uh, where he had a studio room set up. And I, and I walked in there and um, I controlled him, I should say. And uh, and he had two Jupiter eights, and I thought, oh great, I know how to work that thing. Yeah. And uh, his audition was he put me together with an engineer, a guy named Dave Concourse, who I became good friends with, and had a song on a cassette. I don't remember what it was, and he says, well, okay, here's a drum machine, here's some synth, create some tracks for it. Huh. And so I did, and uh, he liked it, and so he hired me. And I think within a week, I was flying off to New York uh, to work on uh, the, the Irene Cara album. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, so that's and uh, so that's kind of how that got started. Okay, Um, it's funny. One thing I'm sort of learning about situations like this is that sometimes you the people who get the calls are the ones who just happen to have the best gear, you know, like you uh, like not to minimize your talent or anyone else's, but it's like who around here has that one keyboard that sounds I've been reading about that sounds pretty cool. Oh, Arthur has that. Let's call Arthur. Let's get Arthur over here. You know what I mean? It's almost like well, that, a variation on right time, right place. Um, well, I, that, well, I wouldn't say that was the case with Giorgio. I would oh, say really? Okay. A, well, I would say it was a case because he didn't know that I had a Jupiter 8 when he uh, you know, invited point. me. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just, it just kind of lucky that he and I, I guess, both had similar tastes in synthesizers. Okay. And, um, and both like that particular instrument. I believe, but there I would say uh, to other things that were going on at that time, I guess before the Giorgio time when he had their Jupiter 8, yes, that was the case. There was often, you know, somebody, wow, we need a synth. We need a synth. You know, who's a good synth guy? Oh, Arthur, he's got, you know, he's got some, synth, uh, you know, Jupiter 8 good stuff. And right. there weren't that many guys at, at that time. Yeah. You know, this is before the invention of, of MIDI, if you know what MIDI is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um, yeah, it, okay. was really, and it, was, it was it was a lot of fun because it involved triggering things and yeah. speaking things up with the drum machine and those those digga 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 digga. Right. You were, you were, the pulse coming out of the drum machine that would trigger yes. that and you get to play the notes. And, uh, but all the other stuff was, uh, the chordal stuff was all played by hand. Huh. Um, um, let me ask yeah, you in something. Studio, I'll punch you in Okay, I've had a lot of people on the show who have played with um, with Giorgio, including people you probably know, like E.G. Daly and Paul Engeman oh, yeah. and, and uh, a few sure. others. Oh, yeah. I can't remember who told me this. It might have been Paul. I got the impression that Giorgio is kind of more of an overseer, that the people who work for him, he sort of swoops in. But, you know, he's probably, I imagine him, you know, dressed just show, just so, and he's driving a really nice car. And there's everyone like E.G. or Paul or Keith Forsey or you sweating it away in the studio, working so hard. And he kind of swoops in and says, hmm, I like that. Okay, yeah, keep going. And then he swoops back out and goes off and skis somewhere while you guys work. Is that, I can't, I can't remember where I heard that, but is that sort of, an, is that correct? 
That's pretty darn close, I would okay. say, uh, especially during the time when I was working for him. Because once he had the hit with, with What a Feeling, then suddenly all the producers and directors or whatever in Hollywood would, oh, we got to have a hit single in our song. Let's, yeah. let's call Georgia. And get, so yeah. suddenly he was like burning, smoking hot again. Yeah. So he, uh, he had just bought this studio. Um, or I guess about the time I was working for him, had bought this building. It had been a studio a big, with a big room, and he turned that into three small studios, you know, like control rooms with, with vocal booths mostly. And he, pretty soon we're working on Scarface and Top yeah. Gun and Never a New Story and DC Cab and all this stuff at once. And so he had, you know, he had each room with a sort of a, a different team. My my, yeah. my team was basically me and uh, uh, Richie Zito, who played guitar mm. and did the drum programming, and yeah. I did the synth and bass. In fact, Georgia didn't even realize for a while that I was actually a bass player. <laughs> really? Player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think Keith Forsey came in and said, hey, I, yeah. I played bass with Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm doing this pretty good, dude. Yeah. And so that was cool, too, because then when Giorgio found out, he... You know, there's you'll hear a lot of uh, bass of my bass, the same bass kind of exact same bass and similar slapping sound that I used okay. on Ghost Garage. Here on Rush, Rush, Get the Yale, right? Okay. You know, from Scarface. And, and that's one in particular where, by the way, I remember that Giorgio uh, got real involved. And, uh, really? and I had my synthesizer. Yeah, Giorgio was there, you know, doing stuff and really producing. And so, yeah, he was, it, was, it was fun working directly with him. Okay. But also Tell just to get back to how, yeah. he, going to, how he worked on, on a daily basis with us, it, 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 of course, he had to write his stuff. First of all, you understand, he was a writer-producer. Mm. And, um, and, and maybe the other side of the coin of... of um, you know, having other people do the work, which he certainly did when I, when I was there. I, I mean, do a lot of the work. For example, you know, when he was working with uh, Donna Summer, I wasn't there, but, you know, I, or any of the singers he worked with, I suppose, it's like he's the writer, he's the producer, he creates the tracks, um, tr make sure they're in the right key, the singer comes down, the singer sings the part, the singer says goodbye, and uh, Giorgio finishes. Giorgio's song, it's not the singer's song. Really? It is. Oh yeah, it is about uh, yeah. George was totally in control, and, and huh. apparently Donna Summer. Here's a funny story for you yes. that I heard. If, I, if it's true, um, you know, on that, this again before I worked with him, but that song on the radio, big number yeah. one hit, right? Well, there's a verse that just goes la 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 on the radio, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. I, I and the 
Donna Summer didn't turn the page. No and, way. Um, <laughs> and just went la 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 on the radio. And they said, okay, you know, we, we missed the lyrics for that part. You know, just so I, you know, I'm sorry. I'm in a, I got to go. I can't do that. Goodbye. Because she, she apparently had very little patience for being in the studio, which made a perfect for match with Giorgio. No <laughs> way. He didn't, want, he didn't want the singer hanging in the studio, you know, it, you know, giving their voice yeah. their idea. So, it, you know, it's so like, well, okay, we just left it with the la la. They left it with the la la's. And, didn't stop it from becoming a number one hit. Oh my gosh, that is wild. No Isn't way. That yeah. So I want to ask you about uh, the interactions you may have had with people that you know you supposedly work with or he worked with around this time. One album that I really love, I'm a big Human League fan, and he and uh-huh. uh, Phil Oakey did that album together. did very extensively yeah okay tell me all about it well it was done in in quite a big hurry um it was during just that time period where everything was just crazy and hectic and Giorgio had written these songs he had the idea to make I kind of spent so long as I've heard it but at least one side of the album I think was continuous like in the same tempo with you know uh, what is it three or four songs uh that, that were like all segued together Yep. And, um, yeah, I just remember working madly on that um, and just, you know, laying things down. And I, there was one with Georgia 
had probably minimal oversight on that of what I was doing. So there's a, a lot of my input on that particular one. Ah. So, I mean, just to clarify, so, you know, it's it bears his name. He gets all the credit. I'm sure he's the he's the one with ultimate veto power. But he, again, yeah. is just not the guy in there every day sweating it out. No, not not necessarily, especially during that time. I don't know at other times when he had okay. you know wasn't working on three or four projects at the same time. It may have been it may have been different. And I don't want to take too much credit for for no, that uh, for no. thing. But um, because I mean, don't forget, he is the producer. Yeah. Was his, and not only that, it's, it was the he was the well he and it, he was the artist along with yeah. Loki. Yeah. Yeah. And he was the writer. He wrote everything, and of course, somebody else would write the lyrics. Okay. But and, and, and you know, I do something, you know, if he didn't like it, he, you know, he would have me do something else or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But so um, do you have a Phil Oakey story? I, I love that guy. I don't think I I don't think I ever met him. Oh, really? So you're yeah, we, you got you really, literally are you you're working on the sound bed, the music bed. Phil's yeah. flying in some other time singing and leaving. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where they even recorded his vocals, to be honest. Um, I don't know. I would finish the track, and that was wow. the end of it, as far as I was concerned, until till I got a copy of the album. No way. Um, so let me ask yeah. you this. He, uh, Giorgio and Joe Esposito did one, too, Solitary Men, that Paul Engman yeah. also sang on. Were you involved in that one at all? Yeah, well, I remember uh, Joey Esposito being around and Paul Ingman. I did work with him on some stuff. And so I, I was there during the time period that he was doing stuff with Paul Ingman. Okay. Um, I don't think I'll go re regret this. Too. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I will, but I hear I'll tell you something. Yeah. The main reason that Paul Ingman got gig singing for Giorgio because Giorgio was dating his hot sister, Sean. <laughs> I did know that. Yes. As an aspiring singer. And um, it, it, Giorgio, one of the things that would happen is like, oh, well, stick you, to, you, you, and, you and Sean get together and try to write yes. some songs. And so I'm stuck with Giorgio's girlfriend. With and uh, and oh, she went so on funny. to marry uh, what's Larry, King. Uh, King, Larry King. Yeah. 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 She was a nice enough girl. She was, she gave, she was, they were Mormons. And she, she warned me about Mormons. Yeah, and her first husband was in, in in jail because of like uh, kiting checks or something like that. Oh she my said, gosh! You gotta watch out. The Mormons are notoriously uh, fraudulent business people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a Mormon too, but I'm not a businessman. Uh -oh, so that, no, it doesn't offend well, me at all. It, it, I, 
I've heard these stories. It's okay. Um, There's some, you know, you know what it is really is that uh, we are no more um, blinded to the temptations of the world than anyone else. We like to claim we are or that we have the, you know, the path to the straight and narrow figured out, but we don't. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anybody does. No, I don't think so. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So, but you okay. know, I don't know. I'd have to. I don't know. That, that solitary man doesn't ring a okay. Bell, no biggie. But, uh, we'll we'll uh, we won't go there now. E.G. Daly, I know she was also heavily involved in his sort of stable of artists. Um, yeah. What did you do with E.G.? Well, she sang, you know, some of the songs. I don't exactly. Didn't she sing a couple of songs from Star Scarface? Yeah, she did. Um, She sang Waiting on the Breakfast Club soundtrack. There's a few. Keith has some um, uh, instrumentals on there. Quite a few. Were you involved in those at all? Yeah, on Breakfast Club. You know, I'm trying. It seems like I did something on there, but okay. it, it was minimal. Okay. It was, was fairly. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Um, uh, yeah. No, E.G. Daly was one of the sort of stable of singers that that you know he I mean, he's he, you know Georgia thought she was kind of cute, I guess. She and, sure is. And yeah. uh, and. Uh, and then there was another woman, uh, Beth. Uh, she's got credit on some of them. Um, okay. I'll, maybe I'll think of it before we're done. Um, okay. But but she she was a great sound alike singer. She could you know um, uh, she could sound like any female singer that you wanted. Okay. Um, okay. Um, we got to talk about Berlin. Now um, you know he produces no more words, and of course take my breath away. You uh, right. one thing I'm piecing together. The, I mean the. The bedrock of Take My Breath Away, especially at the beginning, is that heavy kind of synth bass sound. Is that you playing that sound? Yeah, yeah. Uh, really? It was, it was Giorgio's line. I'm playing just about everything you hear on there except for the vocals and the guitar is me. Really? The, uh, the layered synth. Yeah, and there's fact, and there, I'm pretty sure there's even, a, I had created a sample on my early sampler of a I did like a multi-track or delays or something of just some ooze with uh, real spacey sounding ooze of my voice that I could play from a keyboard. And, and that's part of the pad in there too, which is oh, massive okay. stuff. But here's, um, here is an old interesting side story on Take My Breath Away. Giorgio was, you know, a good enough musician that he was aware that uh, you had to, you know, make sure you had the right key for this, the singer. And so, um, he had written. He had written. Take my breath away. The mm-hmm. uh, record company liked it, so the next uh, not record company, excuse me, movie company liked it, and so the next step was to find a singer, and I think he tried four or five or maybe six singers before 
we we he they whoever decided decided on uh, uh, what's her name for Berlin. What Terry Nunn. Blanket on her. Yeah. Um, so we recorded tracks in five or six different keys, complete tracks of the song really? for the singer to sing to. Yeah, and. Uh, and, and Georgia was into working like really, really fast. He did not have patience for, he was not like a Steely Dan kind of guy. He would yeah. like, you know, spend, spend days getting a drum sound or a guitar sound right. or anything like that. It was just boom, the limb drum, it's going to be the limb, that's the drum sound. It's going to go yeah. boom, 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 you know. And and um, and, uh, and the guitar, <laughs> the guitar players don't, don't they, they just can't believe <laughs> you're a gas when I tell them that. I think all of the guitar sounds that, that Richie recorded um, went through a, a, a thing called a Rockman. I don't know if you play guitar and knew what that was. No, in the I 80s. don't. It was, well, you remember the Walkman that you could attach sure. to your belt? Well, it was like that, but for plugging a, a guitar into it. You'd plug your guitar into it. It had a headphone output, and it had you know a couple of settings. It had a chorus, and it had distortion and clean. <laughs> I think no was way. It. And, yeah, and so... That was, I don't think we ever used a guitar amp for any of those um, uh, sounds. Richie would plug into the Rockman and they'd take the stereo output of it and uh, and record that, and that was the guitar. There was no, no fucking around with plug amps oh and mics and everything. Oh and, and Giorgio, he would come in sometimes afterwards and, you know, Richie get excited. Oh, I've got, you know, stereo guitar. That was kind of new. You know, guitars were always just one track. And so he'd record, you know, three or four stereo tracks. Or maybe not even that one, or just two or three uh, stereo tracks of the guitar. And Georgia would come in and she said, "No, no, I need those tracks." You know, to, and and it, rather than you know the right way to do it would be to take two tracks and bounce them down to mm -hmm. you know put them mix them together and you know monoize and put them on a track because you know the stereo says at times you just the, the the chorus would be on one side and the straight signal on the other side. Georgia said, "No, just wipe half the track, just erase." <laughs> The, the left or the right side of the guitar track. Wow. I need that track. No way. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just doing on the fly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I just, before I forget, can I? Yeah. I, I think it'd be uh, beneficial just to describe a sort of typical day with George. Ooh, please. At that yes. Time. Yeah. Um, like I say, he was writing all the time, always needed to write new stuff. He would let's see. He he loved to be, in the morning. I guess he he would go to the polo lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel and hang <laughs> out there. Of course, he yeah, would. and uh, and mingle with the, the you know the rich people and the jet set and the Hollywood people. Yeah. And he'd come in around like maybe two p.m. We'd already be there, and he'd say, "Well, I only got to write a song." And so, you know, he'd say, well, "What kind of song do you want to do?" And I think a little Latin kind of Latin feel. And so we go in there and you know set up kind of a Latin groove on the drum machine at the tempo he wanted and. And he gets set up with a uh, usually at the Fender Rhodes, sometimes with a synthesizer, and a headphones and a microphone and the remote control for the tape machine. And so he'd just be in there by himself, and he'd push you know, everybody else leave, and he'd uh, he'd work on some stuff and try to write some stuff. And and sometimes he'd come out after 20 minutes or so and say, "Ah, oh, nothing today, boys. You know, let's do something else." <laughs> or or he'd come out, he'd say, oh, "Okay, I think I got something. Come on in." And uh, and he said he can listen to it. He says, "Okay, so I need, I, I need a trigger bass, and I need a slap bass, and I need uh, two beautiful strings here, and, and some bubbles, and some uh, Simmons drum, and a clean guitar for the for the verses, and then a heavy one for the chorus, 
And, uh, okay, boys, i got to go tonight. I have a date with Centerfold. I'll see you in the morning. No. <laughs> oh, my tonight gosh. Tonight I have Centerfold. <laughs> oh, that sounds just like what you think Giorgio Moroder's life is like at that time. <laughs> that is it. it. Yes. So, oh, uh, you know, so we'd leave and we'd work on it, you know, we'd work on it, you know, for four or five, six, seven hours, whatever it took. And, and he'd come back the next day and listen to it and say, this, I, you know, I like this, I like this, oh, I don't like that, get rid of this uh -huh. and that, instead do this and, you know, do that. And, and like, but, so that was like a, a typical day. And here's, here's a little funny story, one of my favorite stories. Um, one time he, he, he would like to do a sort of a, a sort of slow Latin beat, like a, um, uh, kind of thing, like tempos okay. like this. Uh, and uh, so one day he writes this thing, and it sounds almost exactly like I don't know if you remember this song, an old song called "Spooky" by the Classics Four. Oh, I don't know if I know it. In the cool of the evening, when everything is getting kind of groovy, I call you up and ask you if you like to go. Love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you. Oh, sure. Oh, look at that. Yeah. It's a great song. Well, he would write a song that sounded almost exactly like that, like the same chords and vamp and feel. And I uh, said, God, I tell you, that's really great. That's cool. You know, it, it sounds a lot like that song Spooky by the Classics 4. He says, oh, really? He says, well, was it a hit? I said, oh, yeah, it was a big hit. Oh, good, then. <laughs> and he already knows it's been it's tried and true right it's been proven yeah, to work yeah. that is and, and when he uh, one, another thing would happen when he needs to write a, a, a song for something he'd send uh the flunky down to tower records and go buy the singles of the the mm. whatever was the top 10 of billboard that week okay and and we sit down and we'd listen to them and wow and George, oh, oh that one i like that one. let's do something like that that is great and we would just and we would, uh, and so we, uh, me and Richie, go in there, and we'd like, you know, cop the groove, you know, copy some of the, the groove elements, and get the yeah. feeling for it, and do something that had a similar feel to that. And so that was one way to work. And which, just as a side subject, brings me to a weird, disturbing thing to me—a a copyright issue with that. Oh, who's that guy that got in trouble for? Uh, oh gosh, can't remember for it. 
uh, a lawsuit uh, saying that it did sound it sounded too, uh, talk about Robin Thicke and Pharrell that sounds yes. like Marvin Gaye yeah exactly exactly <clears throat> Yeah. And uh, and they they came out. And they admitted they did exactly what I just described Georgia doing. Yeah. Listen, yeah. Oh, we like it. oh, let's do something like that. Yeah. And to me, that's perfectly okay. You right. know, it's like how how can you really copyright that? That's just a groove. That's just something yeah. similar to the groove. It's not like copywriting when you wish upon a star. Right. Know, that's right. You know. And so I found it quite disturbing, actually, that uh, that Thick lost that case. Yeah. Because that's bad president in my, yeah, in my it's tricky as an aside yeah okay i got a couple more giorgio questions for you i want to know more about keith forsey i um sure i he seems really uh mysterious to me i've tried to track him down to get yeah. him on the show because i love so much of what he's done and i can't find mm -hmm. him and i have a feeling he likes it that way what was it like uh -huh. working with keith forsey yeah well first he is on facebook i don't know if you ever tried facebook is he him. I think yeah. I have. Maybe I'll try it again. Yeah. Okay. Could do. He had been Giorgio's drummer back in the, I guess, in the Donner summer days over in Germany. And, and in those days, it was a pre-drum machine. So Giorgio would just have him go out and record, you know, a whole reel of tape, you know, which is, um, and Giorgio always ran at 15 IPS, not 30. So I think that's 30 minutes. He'd have him go just record to a, I guess, to a click track, I suppose just a drum beat, like a disco drum beat with fills mm -hmm. every eight bars or whatever. And then Georgia would write to that instead of, as he did later with when I was writing to a drum machine. You know, Giorgio was, was inclusive um, with people that worked for him. And I, I believe uh, Keith wrote or co-wrote lyrics to Hot Stuff during that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once you do something like that, then you got money coming out. Yeah, true. <laughs> so you've got a co-writing co on a number one song, you're, yeah. you're happy. And he and, wrote uh, uh, "Don't You Forget About Me" from Breakfast Club, which is still gigantic. Yeah, with, uh, with my friend Steve, I still hear you that all the time. My friend Steve Schiff co-wrote that song with him. Oh, really? And he also, oh, and he also wrote the lyrics to uh, that "What a Feeling" song from Flashdance. Mm -hmm. And so then he started getting. I think what would happen is I don't know if this, I don't know if Billy Idol's the first thing he produced. Probably not, but I think. And I know this happened a couple of times. I couldn't swear to it, but it probably would have happened is Billy Idol came to Giorgio, you know, saying, would you produce me? Yeah. And, um, and Giorgio says, oh, I'm too busy or, you know, I didn't really want to do it. But he'd say, well, you should, you should check out this guy, uh, Keith Forsey that works for me. He's real good. Maybe he'd like to do it. Yeah. And so, um, and so Keith, and so that was Keith's real big um, <clears throat> stepping stone was get <clears throat> that first album, um, I guess it's the first album that has the, you know, uh, uh, White Wedding and yeah. Dancing with Myself. And, that's right. You know, that, that's right. Yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. And and then I worked with Billy Idol on the Billy uh, on the album. Um, Charmed Life. Charmed Life. Yeah. Yeah, what and did you do? Because that was his big comeback. Yeah, um, well, that was, um, I was the synth guy and, and played bass. And Keith, it was the opposite of Giorgio. He he was very hands-on. He okay. was always there scrutinizing every detail and wanted it just so. And and he was very intense and I, I liked working with him um, for that reason. He'd just get right in your face and he's always like getting excited and jumping up and down, you know, or, or getting bummed out and kicking the snare drum over. <laughs> <Can't get something. laughs> That's great. But he, was, he was, but he was good. I mean, he was intense, you know, it had to be, had to be right. And, um, 
so yeah, I worked on that 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 album, and it, they were spending tons of money. They were going super way over budget, and the, I think the record company was getting pretty worried. I bet. And you know, did the album, submitted the songs, and the you know the people, the record company said, oh, I don't know, we still don't hear a hit. You know, here here here's here we like this song. Here's this, there's a song, Cradle of Love. Huh? Try to do a version of that. See what comes out of that. And nobody really liked it. Joey didn't like it. Keith didn't like it. And so in that case, Keith just kind of, you know, we found the key for Billy, I guess. And um, Keith kind of handed over the the, the, the programming of it to my to me. Um, now, I don't think a lot of my synth parts ended up, but I kind of created the initial bed of the tracks. And, you did. And Keith, but yeah, yeah. And I'd have to go and listen to it again to see what I did. But I do distinctly recall Keith kind of not really caring all that much about the song but you know, it was getting me with people getting pretty burned out by that time because we looked yeah. on the album a long time and a lot of hours and, no way um, so i remember just kind of okay well you know put you know get to start the thing anyway kind of get it arranged and yeah know, sussed out and uh and then that that became the hit wow but now <laughs> when he was i saw him he went on tv one of I don't know, was it Johnny Carson or Jay Leno or something and did that song? And uh, it's a rustic way of love. Can't remember the original lyrics. It's because something easy now. And it's really saying, oh, this song's so cheesy now. He said that? <laughs> 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 oh, man, that's rock and roll. I love it. That is great. Yeah, I, like, I like Billy OK too, for the most part. He was cool, but until, until he started drinking. Um, uh, I, I, you know, so, you know, I'd work and we'd work pretty, pretty all day until like 10 o'clock at night. And then it's like, okay, we're off the clock now and time to knock a few back and drink some vodka or some tequila or something. I remember sitting uh-huh. next to Billy and uh, he'd been drinking some tequila, tequila and he's just getting, getting a buzz. And he kind of, he kind of started snarling like yeah. an animal or yeah. You know that look on his face, that sneer, that sneer. Uh, he sort of started doing that. I said, "Look at my watch." Oh, oh, look at the time. I, <laughs> I guess I better. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's exactly how you imagine Billy Idol acting. Now, let me ask you this: was, was the place just jam packed with like scantily clad women? Only on Friday night. Okay. Um, okay. That was that was. Uh, the, um, Let's see. How can I put this delicately? I'll just put it this way: the I the 
the excuse or the idea for uh-huh. it was that on, if we worked all hard all week and Friday night he'd send somebody out to uh, the clubs in Hollywood and you know around you know meet girls and say hey you want to come hang out with Billy Idol and yeah. Um, yeah you know five or six girls would come there and you know and so Keith would play the songs we'd been working on like really loud and in the control room and the other thing and you know watch the girls react and how they dance and Keith said yeah you got to put it on the pussy meter. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he would have this register on the pussy uh, meter. So I don't know. That's exactly <laughs> right. That is exactly right. Okay. Huh. Do you have I mean, Billy Idol just seems like he's uh like he is his character. There's no Yeah. He doesn't yeah. turn on Billy Idol. He is Billy yeah. Idol all the time. Yeah, and, and Zappa was the same way, by the way. Really? Yeah. Okay. Huh. Wow, that's he didn't crazy. get to start snarling. Yes, but otherwise, okay. Now you have uh, very strong connections with Robbie Krieger, The Doors, and Billy covers right. "L.A. Woman" on that album. Is there were you involved in that at all? favorite Billy Idol songs is the LA is his version yeah, of LA it's rocking. It is. And, and I do, so you're responsible. Yeah. You brought that to him? Oh, no, 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 no. He was already doing it. No, no, oh, 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 oh. 
Okay. No, no, I was, but I was involved in playing, and I, I have a, one other thing I have a distinct memory of is uh, we, we, when you record a thing like we had a whole band out there. Like, unlike working with Georgia, we build up tracks one at a time and, and create it that way. And in this case, at least for this song, we had a band. Had you know, uh, I was playing a keyboard, had a drummer, and a bass player, and a guitar player, and uh, and Billy in a in a booth doing a doing a scratch vocal. They usually would do a scratch or a guide vocal, and then. The idea would be to go back and replace it usually uh, with you know with a, with a better microphone, et cetera. And so he was just singing on the SM58 in a booth, but he sang the shit out of it, and yeah. everybody liked it so much they just said, "Man, let's just keep that." You know, I don't care if it's on a 58; it sounds great. So that, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure that vocal that ended up on that on the record it was the the just the, the live vocal that he did wow. as we recorded the, the tracks. Yeah, that's that which is kind wild. of unusual for yeah. a pop record. Um, okay, we got yeah, another right, Keith yeah. Forsey thing to talk about here. Charlie Sexton. I've always been fascinated uh -huh. by him. <clears throat> and um, because I remember when he kind of burst onto the scene and he was this teenage guitar slinging hero and that right. he was going to be huge. Like... Yeah, he was a good looking yeah. guy, these high cheek cheekbones. He looked the park. And then the like album that. comes that out, Pictures cool. for Pleasure. And uh, yeah. Beat So Lonely, which is such a great song, but I've always felt that that album doesn't showcase, get to showcase his guitar. sounds too synthesized it sounds like machines made that album and now i like that album but i've always felt bad for charlie because i felt like it wasn't true to the marketing that was going on about what kind of an artist charlie was does that make sense well uh I, yeah i can i can give you some insight on that um okay well for one thing i actually went back and listened to that album recently i'm setting my stuff up in a new uh, little studio here and I just dug out some albums I hadn't heard of, and I listened to it, and I, I was kind of disappointed in it. Um, uh -huh. It wasn't as good as I remembered, and uh, but uh, I should go back and check it again. Maybe I'll like it more. But anyway, uh, I remember Charlie saying to me very specifically that he didn't want to do a, an Austin, you know, you know, really style countryish, you know, yeah. whatever you'd call it, bluesy. He said he wanted to get away from that. You know, he. He, I, he was into the, the newer stuff and into the synths and shit and says, no, nah, I don't want to do an album like that. I want to do, this is what I want to do. So it wasn't, that if, if, I think there's a myth out there that 
somehow he was forced to do that oh. style of music. But it was not true. He okay. remember very specifically telling me that's, that he didn't want to do that kind of guitar-y, kind of Austin-sounding. I had no idea. Know. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That I've always mm -hmm. been under the assumption that he got screwed in the deal somehow. And again, let me just say, I, as you can tell, I love Keith Forsey and everything he does. Yeah. But I just didn't feel like that was the right album for Charlie. But now that you say that, it makes a lot well, more sense. Yeah, well, and I guess the public would agree to you because the album pretty much stiffed. Yeah. And his the did, uh, album isn't very good, unfortunately, for him. Unfortunately. No, it's I don't not. Think. Oh, I have, a, I have a story about that, too. Oh. But, um, yeah. Um, so, you know, they spent a, a ton of money on the Pictures for Pleasure album. And, uh, you know, and it didn't do anything. It stiffed. Yeah. And um, so the record company... Michael Goldstone, the guy who who'd found George, I mean, not George, uh, uh, Charlie, and got Charlie. signed to MCA, uh, didn't want to use Keith Forsey again. So he was looking for other producers. And I had a, a, a manager at the time that was sort of a thing for producers to have manager. He had, knew, he, he had been a former MCA executive. And, um, and he said to, um, to, to Goldstone that, uh, or, or to Charlie, whoever, he said, anyway, he suggested that Charlie and I get together and try to write something. Mm. And, uh, and we mm. did. We got together. It, well, so I should back up. Uh, Charlie had uh, written and recorded several songs of his own in his own little home studio. And uh, the record company had taken that as tapes and, and shopped them around to various producers, you know, big shot producers. And um, no, they all passed on it because uh, the songs just weren't really all that good. Mm -hmm. And so it was suggested that Charlie and I get together because we had always gotten along. We're both from Texas. And, mm -hmm. um, so Charlie liked the idea. He came over and we wrote a few songs. We wrote, uh, my, I think we did three songs that ended up on that album. The, the, the best one, at least the demo was, was uh, called Save Yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did a, like, just a killer demo. It just turned out really nice and um, had vibey and good and had lots of guitar and it was just really cool. So it, 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 the record company guy, you know, even like he called me up and my wife saved the message. I said, God, this is fucking amazing. This is so fucking great. I love this song. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him and he, he said, yeah, he, said, he didn't make any promises, but he said, yeah, I think we, you know, I think we want you to produce this album. I think it's going to be great with you producing it. And I said, wow. That's be great. My big production break. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and meanwhile, now that he had some demo of some good sounding songs and some good material, uh, while I was working with Charlie, thinking that I was going to be producing his next album, the record company guy goes and shops it around to other producers again, Big Shot uh -oh. producers. And Big Shot mm -hmm. Bob Claremont, here's the song I did with Charlie, and oh, I like that, I'll produce mm -hmm. that. And um, ended up co-producing it with some guy whose name I can't remember that my manager also managed and basically took the project away from me. And I was oh, so man. pissed at that. Like, like, you're betraying me. You're, you're yeah. wrecking the other guy when I'm the guy who was working with Charlie and writing the song. So that was oh, kind of that came to end. Sucks. Really. That sucks. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, yeah, that, that's the music. That's the story you know. there. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, okay, true. I have some more, like, kind of one off things I wanted to ask you about. Before we get too okay. far, I. I do want to shine a light. You mentioned writing that song with Charlie. Um, from what I can tell, one of your first bigger composition credits is on the Diana Ross album, Swept Away, right? Yeah, yeah. You did the song Touch right. by Touch. 
Um, yeah. I remember swept. I always loved that song, "Swept Away." Now, how did you get involved in this project? Well, this is this is another good story. I'm really glad, by the way, we're doing this because I talk so much about Zappa and I don't get to talk about this. Anymore. I don't want to talk okay, about Zappa. So, I want to talk about the other stuff. <laughs> no, that's cool. It's great. Me too. Uh, so. Um, so, you know, Georgia's riding high, and Diana Ross mm. calls and says, oh, I'm Georgia, you want to produce, you know, pr produce an album for me. And so Georgia, as I said, is a writer-producer, so Georgia wrote a bunch of songs and uh, and also encouraged other other of us to write songs, which he always did. He did that on the Irene Care album. Richie and I wrote a song just on that album. And, yeah, sure. And, of course, the deal was, you know, you write songs and record the demos in my studio, and, and I'll keep the publishing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which he did mm -hmm. but you know okay so better not having a song so he wrote these songs and 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 we wrote uh i i started uh the uh touch by touch in my little studio and got the vibe that kind of island vibe to it and uh then brought it in with with uh um uh, with richie and he came up with the, the sort of chorus part and then i think it was joey esposito that yeah. uh he came up with the title touch by touch no and way. so that that split three ways on uh maybe he wrote some of the lyrics but he came up mainly with the title um so the writers got split three ways and then in the, the georgia kept all the publishing so that means for every um <laughs> dollar that that i get from that song through ascap or whatever georgia gets three oh <laughs> so anyway here's the funny part of the story well first of all he, he you know he written we made all these demos and and he, he, I flew to New York with Georgia to, to meet with Diana Ross and kind of put on a coat and tie and everything yeah. with the studio, went over a couple of songs and she was, she was very, very nice, I thought. And, and, you know, it's pretty awesome to be around her. It's such a goddess, you know, and went, went back to, went back to LA and a few days later, she and left her with a cassette. A few days later, she calls us up and says, well, well, I don't really like any of these songs. And she was right there, just some shitty, but I always, always remember this one. That I, it's just so lame. <laughs> George, and when he, he's singing his little voice when he's writing, he had this funny little voice that's sort of like, it was called The Captain of Love, and it went, Oh, the captain of love, he's sailing away. That was just, oh, God. <laughs> what? And, and, and so George says, Oh, well, fuck it then. I don't want to do it. And, yeah. uh, and then so Diana Ross, a day later, because, well, well, I like this one song, and it was Touch by Touch, the one that we'd written. Yeah. And so. It's so, oh, well, great. So, um, we, so we, you know, we get in the studio and we make a, you know, proper tracks of it and everything and, and got this girl, Beth, whatever her name is. God, I wish I could remember her last name. Uh, anyway, as I was saying, she, she's the one that does like perfect imitations and had her and she came in and recorded like a perfect Diana Ross vocal with the, you know, all the stylings and stuff that we told her to do. And she uh -huh. did it and as, as a guide vocal. And so we, you know, did all that and, and sent the tapes off to uh, New York and she uh, went into the studio and recorded her vocal on it and um, it is saying it exactly the way that no Beth was saying yeah, the exact, exact same phrasing and everything and uh, and then uh, mixed it uh, or had somebody mix it and I get a copy of the album and, and that song says produced by Diana Ross what? <laughs> oh man <laughs> And uh, and I remember called the record company. Said, oh yeah, no, that's a mistake. We're so sorry. We're gonna we're gonna fix that on the the next issue of it. It's like yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, they never fixed it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, but uh, but you know, I got a dinosaur, and he's just sort of the end of that story is, um, 
the song became a little bit of a hit in certain countries around the world. And so I still get tiny little bits of money from that from ASCAP nice. every now and then. Okay. But what I only learned just a few years ago when I was doing research for my book, that in 19, uh, what was it, 86 maybe, she hosted the American Music Awards. And she started the program with that song. Really? Fucking song. Yeah, you go check it out. It was like, you know, it had been edited and stuff. Um, yeah. But I guess, how come nobody would tell me that my song is going to be by, sung by Diana Ross in the fucking American Music Awards? That is crazy. Yeah. Wow. That's got to feel yeah. good. Wow. Yeah. Cool. It's great. It's a good song. I like it. Yeah, yeah it is a good song. Um, okay, I gotta let me throw a few more out. Are you doing okay time wise? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can do another five minutes or so. Okay, good. Um, okay, well, let me see. What do I want to ask you about? I feel like we should touch on Joe Cocker. Um, now, okay. specifically, I, I'm tr- according to your website, you you played on uh, Leave Your Hat On from Nine and a Half right. Weeks and right. On the Edge of a Dream from Teachers. If Now those now right. my listeners know I have a deep obsession with movie soundtracks, especially eighties ones. Uh, so I know both yeah. those songs like the back of my hand. You played on okay. those songs. I did. Wow. I did, and uh, Richie Zito produced uh, "You Can Leave Your Hat On." Yeah. And I worked on him uh, pretty extensively on that. And um, Richie had the rather, I think, clever idea of adding kind of a chorus to it. The original doesn't have this little sort of turnaround. It goes, dun, 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 dun. well, you can leave your head. Yes. Yeah, I remember did Joe was a super nice guy. You know, he liked to drink his Heinekens and stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Keith produced Edge of a Dream. And I remember we went to a studio and um, and uh, and we had Benny Caliuta playing on drums and um I guess, I guess I was playing keyboards on that. Sometimes I play keyboards and sometimes, probably keyboards, I'm pretty sure.
and you know, again, it was Julie's in a separate vocal booth to record the, just a scratch vocal. But somehow, I don't know what happened. He, I guess he was, Joe would be really nervous in the studio or something. Hmm. And so we're getting ready. We're about to record. And says, okay, let's do a take. And we look and where, where's Joe? He's gone. And apparently he'd gone to the, to the bathroom to, to vomit or something. He was so nervous. Really? He had to, yeah. Something. A guy with that voice who sang for that long, you wouldn't think he would get nervous. Yeah. I mean, there's some, some people get nervous in the studio. Like wow. Zappa didn't like to record his guitar solos in the studio. He would prefer to, you know, to lift a solo from a live, a live uh, uh, performance uh, and, uh, and, and insert that into this, the studio version. Okay. Yeah. It, it can be kind of intimidating. I guess, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But I'd love to, my favorite of Sue is, is by far as you can leave your hat on. I, I really, yeah. I had a couple of gratifying moments driving around Hollywood and something I played on the, uh, you know, came across the airways, and that, that was one that I heard. And plus, then it's, you know, to, yeah, okay. I, you know, I finally eventually went and watched Nine and a Half Weeks and said, that's me playing the music. Kim Basinger. Although I've heard oh, most of that movie is a body double, so who knows what's actually Kim oh, and right? what's somebody else. Well, yeah. It wasn't really very good, I thought. It seemed kind of stiff or something. Yeah, maybe it was Kim. But, uh, nonetheless, still. Um, Oh, and I just one other. Uh, you want to get just one other thing on "Take My Breath Away"? Yeah, please. That, or here's another little story because that that was the only number one Academy Award winning song that I ever played on. Yeah, true. But just just to, just to back up a little bit, so, so uh, Georgia won a, a, a best song Oscar for "What a Feeling," and now Georgia oh, was out right. of the country or something. Yeah, he was out of the country uh, or something, I guess, and couldn't come to the Oscars and. So Irene Cara went um, instead. Now, and I and Richie and I had been working on this album with her, and we were Georgia's team as far as she was concerned. But I did not play on "What a Feeling." That was already done by the time, okay. like I said, when I hooked up with Georgia. So bless her heart, Irene gets up there and, and thank you, Georgia. And I also want to thank Richie Zito and Arthur Barrow for you know, <laughs> thanks for for something I didn't yeah. do. And then the flip side of that coin is, um, you know, like I say, Take My Breath Away, the only number one Academy Awards singing song I've I played on. I don't have no credit for it at all. Not screen credit, not uh, album yes. credit, just says by, by Berlin. And so uh, I, I got credit for something I didn't do and then didn't get credit for something I did do. So, you know. <laughs> so funny. I'm so glad you brought that back. I wanted to ask you about that. If you had any, I don't know, you seem like you. if you did have sour grapes, you probably wouldn't admit it. But do you ever feel like, there's an Oscar out there that I contributed mightily to that isn't, you know, on my mantle. No, 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 okay. no, no, okay. no. I did my job, you know. I yeah. think I did a good job. Yeah, you did. Uh, I don't know if particular sour grapes. Um, I was a little annoyed when. Uh, oh, here, here's a, another one I say about Berlin. So and how that went down. Um, so, uh, you know, Berlin had their first album. They had. Uh, they had a couple of hits with sex and writing on the Metro. Yeah. And then they got signed to, I guess it was Geffen. Right. And uh, so they do a studio album, they do it. And once again, the record company hears it and they're just not satisfied with it. And, you know, what can we do to make it a hit? So he, he, he get, gets in touch with Giorgio and gives him a cassette of the, the songs in the album. And he says, well, can you pick, you know, pick a, a couple of these songs and, uh, you know, and do Giorgio versions of them. And uh, so I remember going into Georgia's office, me and Richie and Georgia, and we listened to them, and we all agreed, um, well, this one, 
No More Words is good and The Dancing in Berlin is good. Why don't we do those two? Okay, so Giorgio basically just, he after that, he was really not involved hardly at all with those tracks. That was me and Richie uh, doing them, our power pop sound. Yeah. And then, you know, once again, the girl, uh, uh, Terry Nunn, uh, comes in and does the vocals and, and leaves. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that was all cool. And, you know, No More Words got a little bit of a hit, you know. Um, yeah. But the album comes out, and Richie and I was working together on it. Just Richie and I were working together on it the way we always had, as, as a team, kind of doing things together. And neither one of us was particularly the leader. Well, so the album comes out, and I get a copy of the album, and I look at it. It says you know, those tracks they produced by Giorgio Moroder and Richie Zito. Mm. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. I, I was well, you know, Richie was there too when they recorded the vocals and oversaw the mix and stuff, and. I said, well, that's kind of shitty. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they call it sour grapes, but it was kind of a bit of a shocking feeling. Well, and what did they think you were doing that whole time? You know? I don't know. Were you not contributing Richie, as well? Yeah, I, we were the same as we always did. You know, I yeah. say 50 50. Um, oh, but, that's, you know, whatever. that's the Yeah, that's the music business. That's just the way it is. Sounds like and, it. Uh, and, and Richie said he'd make it up to me someday with the. Uh, uh, I'm still waiting. Anyway, yeah. But, uh, okay. Um, okay yeah, let me I, throw... I, still, I still like Richie though. He's, uh, he's another one I would. I've been trying to get on here. I uh, he's worked on so much music that I love as well. Um, let me throw a couple out at you, and I'm they're on your AllMusic.com page, but not on your website. So I don't know for sure that if you even really worked on these things. But one of them okay. is uh, Kenny Loggins' Back to Avalon album. Did you do something on that? Yeah. I did, I did. Uh, that Richie Zito was. That, that, see, that, that's the other thing. That Berlin thing that launched Richie's produ- produ- production career. Got it. Right. Yeah. So he became a producer, and my production career pretty much fizzled. But uh, it's yeah. okay. It's a music business. So yeah, he got. Uh, I, I guess it was because Kenny Loggins sang a song um, or two, uh, at least one on. Um, uh, it was Danger Zone from Top Gun. Yep. Yep. So we, you know, we worked. Well, I say worked with Kenny Loggins. I don't. I didn't really beat it until uh, later in working on that other album. But okay. uh, you know, same thing. Mick Stacking yeah. comes in and sings it. So anyway, Richie got hired to do. I think do not the whole album, but some songs on it. And and I'm playing on some of those. I can't. What What are the songs that Richie? The produced? big one was remember. Nobody's Fool, um, which was from the Caddyshack Two soundtrack. That was one of his last big hits. And then there was also Meet Me Halfway that Giorgio, I believe, co-wrote. That was oh, really? from um, the Sylvester Stallone movie Over the Top, I believe, the one about the arm wrestling. Does this ring a bell? Not exactly. <clears throat> but okay. I know I did record some stuff uh, for that album. I, I'd have to go back and look and listen okay. to it. Some reason my memory of that's pretty foggy. Okay. Okay. Okay, one one more. Let me throw one more at you. What about Eddie Money's "Can't Look Back" or "Can't Hold Back"? Um, I'm sorry, "Can't Hold Back" album. Yeah, uh, that was again. That was uh, Richie's production career. He got Thought a so. call on that. Okay, and uh, and you know Richie hired me to work on those tracks, and um, and I worked on them. Um, I what was the hit was uh, the take out of uh, my take me yeah take, take me, me home tonight. Yeah, right. yeah, that was a pretty big hit. I'm I'm playing on that. Hunger, it's a hunger. Tries to keep a man awake at night. 
Uh, I came to San Francisco, San Francisco to work in the tracks, and I didn't know anything about any money, really. I knew two tickets to Paradise. And, uh-huh. and I flew in there, and the record company or whatever manager sent to somebody to pick me up, and I'm in the car with the guy, and I, I say, you know, I have to admit, I don't really know all that much about any money is career really and uh-huh. and, and he says oh a lot of people don't realize it but he's really a very huge star <laughs> well if he was that huge wouldn't people realize it you know well that's that's kind of the funny part I thought. <laughs> <laughs> although you know what he started to fade away and that album was so huge it kind of re-jump-started yeah. his career honestly yeah can i throw one last one at you sure the Motels Shock album. Oh. That was, mm-hmm. um, apparently you're on there. And that's another one yeah. where they were, you know, they'd had a couple of hits and they're trying to sort of, I think, streamline their sound a little bit, even more. Yeah. And uh, it didn't quite work out, maybe, like it should have. Yeah. Why were you brought in on that album? Well, that was another one. Uh, Richie's career Richie. got launched. from Yeah, Richie produced that. And uh, it was another case in this uh I know for a fact, um, was Martha, you know, goes to Georgia and wants Georgia to produce it. Georgia doesn't want to and says, well, I want to try Richie. And so Richie got the job. And so, you know, he hired me to do the same work and whatnot. But I struck up a friendship with, with Martha and um, and ended up, at, some years after that, writing some uh, some songs with her. So I made some demos. Some of them turned out really nicely. In fact, I, would, I got to call her back. She got in touch with me, uh, I don't know, six or eight months ago, and we were talking about she wants to put out some of the stuff we did. And, Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I like her a lot. I do, too. I had her on here about a year and a half ago or something. And she was so sweet. And I hear about it all the time because at the end we were talking about like some of the regrets she's had in her career. And she didn't come right out and say this, but to paraphrase, it was basically because her daughter died of a drug overdose. I and, know. I was just going to say if you didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And there was there was some obvious regret in her 
mind and in her heart that she, if she hadn't been pursuing her music career the way that she did, maybe she could have helped her daughter more or something. And I just thought, what a yeah. sad burden to carry around. And I hear my listeners mention that to me all the time whenever they discovered that yeah. episode because it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's a yeah, super sweet, sweet lady. Um, I, I, need, uh, I need to call on that. You should. Um, okay. Well, look, this was, uh, I hope you don't mind, Arthur. I, I You've worked on so much music that I love that I oh. get off so much on talking with people like you because I get to just <laughs> run down your resume and lap up all the golden stories and you delivered. Thank you. Well, good. Well, uh, get a copy of my book and get it on Amazon. I will. I will do that. We'll put so a link to it in title, here. The title is, of course, I said yes. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, just last question. I'm out of curiosity. How do you make a living today? Are you, you mentioned playing with, um, is that your primary gig? What do you I do? Don't, I don't play much live gig. I, the past year has been a really kind of traumatic for me. I had a studio over in Mar Vista, just a mile from where I live here. Is it too much? Anyway, for 34 years. And uh, I did tons of stuff there over the years, um, recorded uh, soundtracks for, for four or five, I guess five silent movies, um, you know, just work with clients who would come, just do this and that, whatever came along. Uh, business sort of started petering out, and I had a really horrible uh, owner, this horrible landlady, who um, my rent had been fairly cheap, but I was month to month, and she finally, you know, rents in the west side of LA just had gone up and up and up for inspiration yeah. for office space, yeah. and she finally decided she wanted me out of there. Even though I always paid my rent on it, never asked for anything, been over backwards to be a good tenant. But the greed got the better of her, and uh, so oh, <laughs> get this, on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve, almost a year ago, Christmas Eve, I got a nasty letter from their attorney uh, saying that I was being kicked out and I needed to be out by February 28th, which happens to be my birthday. So, oh, yeah. Oh, so when I when I saw that letter come home on Christmas Eve to have a nice Christmas Eve, and I see that I, I almost fainted. Yeah. So that is getting out of there, you know, I, a, a guy like me that doesn't like to throw things away can accumulate a lot of junk in 34 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> had to go through the crap, throw stuff out, give stuff away, figure out what to keep. And, but what, is, what we ended up doing is I built a small uh, building in, or had, I didn't do it, but had a small building built uh, in my backyard here, which is where I am right now. Okay. And I've set up my, and I'm trying to get, still get things set up and, just when I think I'm about ready, uh, like last, what was it, the, the, the Thursday before Thanksgiving, my, my main computer blows up on me. Oh, no. And, and my Jupiter 8, my precious Jupiter 8, has been in this shop for almost three months now trying to get fixed. Oh, no. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm using it. I can, you know, come in here every day and do stuff, but uh, I'm not quite up and running yet. And it's not, I'm not going to be able to have clients like I did because it's just yeah. a small building and there's no not even a bathroom here and Shoot. You know, it's uh, so, you know, luckily, um, because of the mainly because of the work I did for the during the Giorgio years, mm -hmm. I get a, a little bit of a pension from the union and nice. I get some asset money from, you know, whenever they play Scarface on TV, I get some for that. And then the musicians union has special payments funds that they figure out how to get things every now and then I'll open up a thing and they're, oh, look, here's a check for 350 bucks for a reuse of a song from the Top Gun or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So wow. I, you know, and I'm on social security now and, um, we're okay. I'm okay, okay. financially, you know, I do little things. I, I, I'm hoping to get going again, doing more music yeah. once I get things really set up. But, uh, at the moment I'm, 
I'm not really doing all that much, but yeah. uh, sounds like limbo. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm okay. I'm 67 years old. I, <laughs> you know, I I do what I feel like doing. I come in in the morning and practice Bach on the organ. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> uh, look, I I I can. I feel bad. I mean, this is the plight of, of a lot of people, a lot of musicians who were big in your era having to, that's why I started this podcast was because I was curious how people continue to make it work and it can't be easy, you know, but at the end of it all, I at least want to be able to tell people like you, thank you for the good work you put out there because so much of it matters to me, you know? So, oh, well, I mean, thank you for everything that you've done in your life, Arthur. It means a lot to well, me. Well, and thank you for doing that and, and interviewing me. And uh, it was really refreshing to interview you. Like I say, I do the Zappa ones all the time, but it's it's fun to talk about the Georgia ones. Because the, the Zappa guys don't care that much about the Georgia stuff, just the way you don't care that much about the Zappa stuff. I get it. Uh, oh, one right. other, one other, Ooh, yeah. real quick, one other, one other story, and then I'll go. Uh, Zappa, at, at one point, was uh, Bob Dylan had come over to Frank Zappa's house and and wanted him to produce an album for him. No way. And so I went up to Frank's house after that and and Frank said, "Yeah, he wants me to produce." So I'm I'm so busy. I I think I'll subcontract it out. Have such and such to do a track and such and such. And this is before I was working for Georgia. And he says, "They maybe have Georgia Moreau to do one." What? <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and in fact, here's one more little connection. I. <laughs> Frank was, he was trying to always cutting edge of technology. So Frank bought a, a 24-track Sony digital reel-to-reel machine, uh, the first one you could get. And uh, it was pretty cool. And um, and uh, and I was working for Georgio by, by that time. And I, you know, I'd also, I was still working for Frank. Frank had had me up to the house and record stuff. And, uh, and uh, you know, told uh, Georgia that Frank had got this new digital machine, and, and Georgia said, "Oh, I kind of like to see that." And I said, "Well, we could probably arrange it." So um, I made an appointment, and and, and Giorgio and, and me and this, uh, another guy that, that worked with Giorgio, we all went up to Frank's house in Laurel Canyon, and um, and the engineer let us in. And I remember we just kind of sat there and looked around. And, and Frank had a drum set set up in the studio. And, Georgia said they laugh and look at pointed out and said, What is that? <laughs> Everything we did was wrong. <laughs> and so we sat there and sat there and sat there. And for about and about twenty minutes later, finally Frank came in and and he said, Oh, oh, I thought the engineer was in here showing you stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> Frank up and Georgia Murder met briefly at uh, up at his house. That is crazy. And, uh, and so then Georgia goes and buys three of them. So. Oh, they were like, like 90,000 bucks a piece. Oh, my gosh. And it, it, Georgia, I mean, Frank, after he died a couple of years ago, the, the state got liquidated. And that machine, I think, sold for $50 or something. Oh, because it's gosh. you can't, they don't make the tape for it anymore. Yeah. It's just a boat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. What a story, though. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, go get my book. You get a kid Okay. There you have it. Arthur Barrow. So many crazy stories in there. You, I can't believe it. Now, one more little plug for his book. It's called Of Course I Said Yes. And then also, we didn't get into it on here for some reason, but Arthur has a few solo albums as well. 
the show notes, if you look at the description of this episode, there's a link to his website. You can go on there. You can buy the book. You can buy the CDs, his solo albums, whatever you want to do. Now, I feel a little guilty, as I said in here, that I'm just not a Zappa guy. And so I didn't spend a lot of time on Zappa on here. If you came here for that, I'm really sorry. But I felt like I had to at least close it out with some Zappa. So here's a little bit of Frank Zappa. Arthur played on this song, You Are What You Is. Great tune, by the way. This one I will give it up for. So anyway, thank you, Arthur, for talking with me. And thanks again, Ken, for making this happen. Our, now, next week, next week's guest also has a Zappa connection. Our guest next week also started out playing with Frank Zappa and went on to become one of the most popular and maybe most controversial producers ever, but specifically of the 80s. And maybe you know who that is, maybe you don't. But I guarantee you, our guest next week worked on some music that you not only know, but you might even hate. Okay? So anyway, you're going to want to come back and hear this. I guarantee it. All right? Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, for my right-hand man, for putting everything together. Thanks for all the fantastic work you do, buddy. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You know how to find us on Facebook by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can participate in our daily music polls. You can uh, send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We will be back next Tuesday with another uh, episode. Thank you, everybody. We love you. No more. I don't understand you. Could you please speak more clearly? you ain't